But she said, look, if you want to go to a liberal arts college because you love teaching and you think that's what you want to do with your career, then great. Like, by all means, do it. You'll, you'll be great at it. But she said, if you're applying to only liberal arts jobs because you don't think you're a good enough researcher to make it in a research university, well, then you're wrong. Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get into things this week, I just want to mention a new project uh, that I'm working on, which is a revamped newsletter. I've been writing a weekly newsletter for a few months now, and uh, a few weeks ago, sort of over the holidays, I decided to take a break from sending out my Friday letter. In part, this was because I was traveling and wanted some time off, uh, but I also decided to take a break because I knew that what I'd been writing in the letter wasn't very good, honestly. Uh, I don't I don't want it to be a summary of what my guests and I talked about on Cognitive Evolution. I want it to be something that's actually useful to people, that, that uh, people can really look forward to receiving. And uh, so I spent that time off thinking about what a newsletter should be, the email newsletters that I enjoy receiving, and uh, what I wanted to say in the format. And... Um, you know, one thing that's common in all of the email newsletters that I like is that they're short. Um, none of them are long form, the kind of thing that you might sit down and read in an essay format. They're all uh, based on, you know, more punchy bullet points than lengthy exposition. So, uh, you know, the least interesting ones, they just sort of tell you what the author published that week, which, you know, is, isn't the worst thing in the world, but it certainly isn't all that compelling as standalone material. Uh, overall, what I think a good newsletter should do is pop into your inbox, be readable in a 30-second scan, give you some positive motivation. After all, you're probably reading it while trying to get work done and then give you something small but actionable to chew on while you go about the rest of your day. Um, and then so I thought about what kind of topic might work well in this sort of medium where you don't have to get into, you really, I mean, you really can't, you can't get into a bunch of mucky detail, but you keep it lightweight and positive and sort of motivational. So the right choice would not, uh, you know, for example, be nuanced political commentary. But uh, so the topic that I've decided to give a go is Friendship Friday. And there are two reasons for this choice. One is that I've found that making and keeping friends is one of the greatest challenges of adult life. And I'd like to get better at connecting and staying connected to people that I care about. That is a personal goal of mine. Uh, you know, I think something that we all are uh, you know, it's a pretty common as a point of potential improvement for many of us. And certainly, me personally, it's something that I would like to do better at. And so this letter will sort of serve as my place to reflect on what I've tried, which I will uh, explicitly go out there and uh, try different strategies and thinking about what might be successful and, and what I learned from doing that. And so it'll force me uh, personally to reflect on what I've done or haven't done in my own relationships and to come up with actionable ideas, uh, actionable ideas to try myself and to recommend to uh, anyone who is subscribing to my newsletter. And so the second point is that, um, or the second reason 
is that there's you know a lot of ink spilled over the psychology of happiness, success, love, um, but there's relatively little mainstream psychological work uh, that's dedicated to the one of the most important areas of our life, the plain old friendships that populate our everyday existence. And you know, at the at the end of the day, adult friendships are hard, and there is an aspect of them that is a psychological problem. Uh, how do we get better at connecting and maintaining connections with people throughout the um, difficulties and, and complexities of, of adult life? And you know, I think honestly, we need all the help we can get at that. And uh, also, Friday is the only day that alliterates with friendship. So, um, if you're enjoying the content here on Cognitive Evolution or are interested in learning some more about the psychology of friendships, as well as getting some practical tips, then you can go to my website, codycommerce.com, and check out the newsletter. Also, if you are enjoying Cognitive Evolution, or if you have any ideas for future shows, or you know ways that I could improve, I would love to hear from you directly. Um, you know, podcasts, the sort of template, you know, the boilerplate, standard thing to say is well you know hit the subscribe button you know you know whatever uh that stuff's great but it would mean so much more to me to hear from you directly um if there are things that you like and if you have um you know ideas for ways that i can improve so you can send me an email at uh, cody.commerce at gmail.com i would really appreciate it so anyway let's get on to our guest this week he is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Cornell. He is uh, the chief science officer at BE Works. He is the co-host of the uh, co-host of the venerable psychology podcast Very Bad Wizards. He did his PhD at Yale and his bachelor's at Pacific Union College, which, for those of you who are not familiar, is a liberal arts college in, uh, I believe. Aglin, California. It has about 1,600 students and according to its Wikipedia page boasts six varsity sports teams. Its uh, mascot is Pioneer Pete. The school's motto is they shall be all taught by God, which if I'm interpreting that statement correctly means that the student to faculty ratio is 1,600 to 1. Uh, at any rate, please welcome my very special guest this week, David Pizarro. All right, so David, I'll give you a, a formal introduction when the podcast airs, but uh, I just want to say that uh, I'm a fan of your work, especially your podcast, Very Bad Wizards. It's one of the most established psychology podcasts out there, and it's got a devoted following. Uh, among them, Paul Bloom, who, uh, when he accepted the invite to be on my own show, said that he would be willing to do so despite the fact that it's not your show. So uh, <laughs> thank you for... Uh, coming on today, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talking. Well, thank you for having me, Cody. Uh, yeah. Paul, Paul is wise in all ways, but his uh, strange devotion to, to our podcast. <laughs> so I'd like to start off by asking actually a little bit about your music. I know you've been um, making beats for a long time, and you've done it you know, pretty consistently, it looks like. So how long have you been doing that, and how did you get into it? <laughs> you know... Um, so the answer for how long I've been doing it is I'd say maybe a year longer than the podcast has been going, which is now seven and a half years or whatever, something like that. And um, the way that I got started 
was sort of silly. I I love music, and, but when I when it was time for me to learn an instrument, I learned violin, which is one of the less cool instruments, especially if you grow up being a big fan of hip hop like I was. There's not a lot of room for violin in hip hop, um, and uh, I never thought. You know, I was a big, I was a big geek about, you know, I was the kind of person to read liner notes and, and listen to see who, who was producing any particular hip hop track. So I knew I loved that music, but I didn't think that I was ever capable of making it until I think it was 2010, the iPad, the very first iPad came out. And I realized at first that with GarageBand, you could actually, you could actually make beats you could actually you know even bring samples in and so I started playing around with that and uh I got uh, honestly it was so fun that I just kept doing it for fun even though I wasn't doing the podcast yet and when the podcast came uh came around I thought well at first I was like we we need some theme music I thought oh wait I have this beat that I kind of liked that I made um a, a while back I added some Wizard of the Oz samples, and that became our theme song. And ever since then, I've been making a beat per episode, which is now we're on 180 episodes. And that's not to count all of the the ones that I've discarded because I didn't think they were good enough. So I like to tell people that I make I make podcasts as an excuse to make beats. Wow, I had no idea they were so uh, interconnected. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's really cool how... I mean, I, I was kind of expecting it to be like, oh, well, you know, something I got into in college and just sort of kept doing it. But it's actually something you developed as a sort of musical skill later on after your, you know, career was already in, you know, full tilt and established on stuff. Well, yeah. And Cody, you know, the, I, I often wish that I had started before, but the truth of the matter is um, we only have so much time, right? And... Uh, there's, I don't think it's coincidental that I started doing both that and podcasting fairly late, you know, relatively in my career, uh, right around the time I got tenure because I could, right. But being an academic gives you in many cases, the flexibility to pursue things that you wouldn't otherwise have, have time to pursue. And while I would have loved to learn, you know, how to make beats when I was 20, 21, it was A, an expensive hobby to pick up um, and B, one that I couldn't uh, devote enough time to, to learning, right? It would have to be a career decision at that point. And technology and a slightly more leisure time or I guess flexibility with my time is just what allowed me to pursue some some things that I couldn't otherwise have. Fair enough. Um, so let's dig into things. Uh, maybe you could start by just painting me a picture of your average day. <laughs> um, the, my average day is the, the, the standard deviation is, is very high. <laughs> There's a lot of variability. Um, and, and part of that, again, is because the academic lifestyle is flexible. But generally, when I'm in the swing of things in the semester, um, it is teaching three times a week, meeting with students in, during office hours, and a surprising, a lot, surprising amount of committee work. Um, 
and and I think you've talked to plenty of other people who are even more advanced than I am. They the amount of administrative sort of committee service work that you do gets gets greater and greater um, over time. But most of the time, I would say is spent um, meeting with grad students to talk about their research, the research that we're collaborating on and and then teaching and trying to stay stay just one one class ahead of the students do you have time that you reserve for your own creative um work whether it's um you know uh beats or podcasting or uh writing academic papers or writing uh you know articles that sort of thing you know the the one thing that i sort of enjoy about the podcasting is that it forces me to set aside time. Um, and Tamler and I, Tamler is the philosopher who's my co-host uh, of the podcast from the University of Houston. Tamler and I have been um, basically recording and producing these podcasts uh, every other week for an average of about 50 a year for, for the last seven years. And I, I think that if it weren't for kind of like kind of like having a buddy that you work out with at the gym, they keep you accountable. Um, I think that if it weren't for the fact that we have pre-committed to to doing this, I wouldn't go out of my way to make the time for that kind of activity. And then that also means that I have to uh, make make the music. So that gives me an excuse to do things that I actually enjoy intrinsically. Um, that that's outside of my work. It it provides me a structure to do it because I, I'm very bad at structuring my time. Unfortunately, I'm not. I don't have the discipline. I'm not. Definitely not one of those inbox zero kind of guys. I am. I don't have the willpower or the organizational skill to to set aside time weeks in advance um, in order to do things. So arranging my life such that I will have that time. Even if that means that I'm under under time pressure to get things done, um, even if that time pressure is to make a beat, at least I get that. I get that, the, the time. Um, when it comes to things like writing, writing, writing papers, that gets a little trickier because you fill in your days with um, doing things like meeting with grad students, receiving drafts from them and editing them. And I find sort of sadly that over the past few years, having enough PhD students that most of my writing ends up being editing of other people's writing. So I really have to make an effort if I want to write something on my own. I have to go go out of my way to to find time. And that's that's become a little bit more rare Um to and something something that I actually would like to change. So maybe let's uh, jump back then uh, to earlier in your career when you don't have you know Tamler there and this uh, biweekly schedule of um, you know producing shows. How did you leverage the knowledge that you are not the most um, focused uh, or however you want to describe it? worker yeah. how how did you how did you overcome that in a sense to uh get your uh, you know initial uh you know academic work out there I, that's a it's a good question 
and in my particular case, um, I'll start with with answering why I became a psychologist in in the first place. So, um, in college, I was as in high school, kind of a, a bad student. Not in the not in the sense of of not on not uh, you know I think I was smart enough. I just again wasn't organized with my time. I was rather lazy um, with getting my work done. I switched to be a psych major out of, believe it or not, a business major because I realized that the psych classes that I was taking for a, a, a minor I was planning in, uh, in psychology, uh, that I just enjoyed them. And what I realized was that I was getting unwittingly getting the best grades in all of my psych classes because I was having fun doing all the readings. Part of, the, part of that came from professors who even allowed me to take upper upper division seminars when I was a freshman and a sophomore um, just because I don't know they, they saw something in me and they were nice I just realized I was I was loving the readings and that I think guided me through most of my early academic career it was the sheer desire to want to do these things but that doesn't mean that there weren't some stutters. So when I was in graduate school and early on, I wasn't great at collecting data. I wasn't a lab rat like many of my friends. I loved writing. I loved reading. I loved the theoretical parts of it. But when it came to actually getting getting your hands dirty by collecting data, I wasn't that into it because I didn't, at least I thought I didn't like it that much. It wasn't until... Um, Later on in my graduate school career, say actually my third year, um, that with the help of a friend, a younger student named uh, Eric Ullman, who is now uh, also a a wonderful member of the social psychology field, um, he sort of motivated me to collect data with him. And that's where I got a, a love for data collection. And so again, once I found something that I really enjoyed doing, then it felt easy. Then it's not, then it doesn't require willpower to do. So uh, writing, collecting data, analyzing data, writing up the results, writing the papers, um, that, that became the thing that I really wanted to do. I would look forward to doing that. And that, that bled over into my postdoc at UC Irvine, which was a very flexible postdoc where I could work with uh, any number of people. So I worked with Peter Ditto, a social psychologist at UC Irvine, Elizabeth Loftus, who had just gotten there, a uh, um, memory researcher at UC Irvine, and Linda Levine, who was also a memory slash developmental researcher. And I just enjoyed the topic so much that I left to my own devices. That's what I want to do. I would just cross the street from my little Irvine apartment to a Starbucks uh, and plant plant myself there and do a whole lot of writing. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, when you're lazy, like I was, doing things that you love doesn't feel like work. That's really cool. I like how you used uh, that sort of existing uh, filter of, well, what do I naturally gravitate towards doing? And you just did that. It's not yeah. really a mystery. It's just well, okay, let's structure what I'm going to do around what I consistently feel like doing. Right. And I would add to that, this is actually advice 
that I heard from one of my favorite podcasters, CGP Gray, um, who's one half of the podcast, Hello Internet. Um, it's, it's not just do what you love. You hear that advice a lot, but it's find the thing that you're good at and do that. Um, and I, and the love will usually go hand in hand if you find, if you find something you're good at, because to be honest, Cody, if I really, really loved being a skier, um, and I was out there every day, I don't think I could have become a professional skier. Um, but this was something that I both enjoyed and I realized I was kind of good at, you know, you know, there's something that I've personally been thinking about kind of on this front, which is that there is a difference between really enjoying success in something versus, um, uh, you know, enjoying the act itself. And I think that, uh, a lot of times we get into a game because, there's this idea of, oh, it would be really nice to be successful at X. Um, and if we're really meant to be in that game, we'll also find that, well, if I were left to my own devices, sort of like what you're describing, the thing that I would actually want to do with my time is just working on this thing, regardless of the outcomes that may or may not happen at any point in the future. And uh, I think one thing that's very cool about being an academic is that even though success is very far off and that sort of stuff. In terms of spending day-to-day time, we get to do, for a lot of us, exactly what it is that we would want to be doing, uh, given the option of pretty much anything on the planet. And that's, that's right. really cool. That's something to be really thankful for, I think. Yeah, no, I, I uh, completely agree. Um, the, you know, challenges emerge when you... Um, get to a certain point and and your job becomes um, sort of contains a whole bunch of stuff that you wouldn't want to do. So one of the challenges for somebody, even as they're a few years into a research career at a university, is that there are a lot of things that you can spend your days doing that are part of your job description, but that don't directly relate to that thing that you loved to do. It sounds so, like you're describing your committee commitments, right? Now. Yeah, committee commitments, but also just meetings. You know, there's a way in which, in which um, meetings can take up a ton of your time. So even if it's research meetings with students, um, and that way that you're describing, that's its existence, the existence of meetings. Yeah, yeah, because of course some meetings are are extremely fun, but you can look at your schedule and you can say, okay, um, this week I've done. Uh, X, Y, and Z, some of that's committee meetings, some of that's meeting with students, some of that was um, class prep, some of that was grading, um, that you can fill your days with things that you have to do in the short term, but that which in the long term won't be that either emotionally rewarding or unfortunately career rewarding. So what you're, what you're encouraged to do at the daily level is not what the university is encouraging you to do at the yearly level. At the end of the year, they want you to have grants and and publish papers. But day to day, they want you to do, uh, oh, can you be on this committee to to oversee the overseeing of committees or whatever? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm making it sound a little worse than it actually <laughs> is, but the, it's just the harsh reality that um, uh, jobs... Um, are very different things than uh, than 
um, than just the thing that you want to do. It will always come, you know, even if you are an artist and you're loving your art, um, you're probably going to have to do some accounting, right? And so you always have to go out of the way, out of your way to protect your time a little bit. And that's one of the hardest lessons that I've, I've had to learn. I'm, I, I don't like to disappoint people when they ask me if I can do something. Um, so, so have you gotten better at protecting your time? I have, I think, but it's what have been the honestly, most successful strategies that you've used for that? Learning to not feel guilty at saying no, because the truth is other people don't care that much, right? They, you're, it's easy to get in your head, right? In your own head and say, you get so you get an email saying we're asking if you can be um, ca- can you do this whatever service right I'll, I'll give you an example can you be can you represent the psych department at this booth over the weekend because there's a career fair and we need somebody to to represent the psychology department uh, it's possible for me to sit there and say well if I say no to the chair of my department like that's kind of messed up like that is part of my job description it is my duty on the other hand I have a daughter I have a new puppy this is the weekend do I really need to do it saying no quickly will save everybody um, some some heartache because if you say no I you know I have my daughter this weekend or whatever the chair will be like oh I understand and then they'll go on to the next person they won't hold it against you but it's easy in your mind to think like, oh, now, now my chair thinks I'm a villain. So saying no politely but quickly is is one of the things that took me a long, long time to learn. But that is, you know, and I'm still learning, but it is invaluable if you if what you want to do is is save your time. Because everybody thinks they're asking only one thing of you, right? They don't realize we don't have everybody's schedule in front of us. But for you, it feels like, you know, 15 people have asked you to do something this week. And so it's easy to get frustrated. You have to just realize that, no, like there is a way to manage this and, and just being assertive and clear is the way to do it. David, I can tell that you have some room for improvement here because you agreed to be on this podcast. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing, Cody, um, the getting invited to be on a podcast, especially when it's somebody like a young scholar like you who's, who's starting out, that's just something I've, I've determined beforehand that I'm going to say yes to if I have the time. So I, well, that's really nice. I, <laughs> I am. It does. It does mean a lot to me. I understand the nose, uh, but the, yeah. it, it is really always a pleasure uh, to, to be able to have this opportunity to talk to someone. So, well, thank you. I appreciate and, it. and um, I think that, that you can usually not go wrong asking academics to talk about themselves. It's a pretty um, good gig that you have. <laughs> so I want to go back and I want to talk about your relationship with Eric Allman a little bit. And so yeah. uh, I, I think that's interesting that you mentioned that. And um, I want to know just a little bit more about the details of what that looked like. Uh, what exactly was it that he did uh, that you guys did together where it sort of you know hit a switch for you? You're like, oh, this is something that I can do and that I really enjoy for, regarding experimentation lab work yeah so um this is a as a general piece of advice for grad school i think is good um you know i don't know how you are cody in your grad um experience but like i said before i was the sort of person who really enjoyed writing and and sort of reading and thinking theoretically 
most of my fellow students enjoyed the the date design and collection of data. And so what you would have is often um, students who would collect tons and tons of data and never write it up. I'd say that was the, the, the average student in my program was like that. I wasn't like that. So when I got together with Eric Ullman, Eric was a first year grad student when I was entering my third year. And, you know, we just, we hit it off. He had a, a very, very interesting mind, um, which we can talk about later when we talk about some of the projects that he, <laughs> that were his idea. Um, we just, it, it was a, a nice team because he loved collecting tons of data. And um, whenever we would talk We'd have conversations and I would bring up some ideas and talk at the more theoretical level. He was good at quickly turning that into ideas for studies. And he was like, well, let's go tonight. Let's go collect data. And so we, I would say, really? Like, I don't, I don't want to approach undergrads in the cafeterias because that before the, before the rise of MTurk and stuff, that's how we collected our data. Um, he's like, no, no, come on. Like, let's make the survey. Like we'd make the survey, print out a hundred copies, buy some candy bars, go to the Yale uh, undergrad um, dining halls and ask people to, to fill out our surveys. We'd get home that night, input it into an Excel spreadsheet, run the analyses, and boom, we had a study. Now, if it were just Eric, he might have sat on five, six, seven of those. Um, for me, I was like, wait, we have four studies here. Let's write this up. So then I would you know, be the one to to turn it into a paper and so finding collaborators um, especially early on in graduate school who complement you who who have strengths that you don't have and whose weaknesses um, are different than yours I think is great and, and you know in in our particular science collaboration is expected it's the norm we're not you know we're not expected to do all of this on our own and um, so he sort of ignited. He showed me that it can be done and it can be done in a way that's rewarding. Um, and hopefully I, I gave him sort of the knowledge that it's not that hard to turn it into <laughs> to an actual final product. So how did you guys meet and at what point did you identify um, that there was uh, the potential for collaboration and being complementary? And how do you think that works or might might work more generally, right? Um, because uh, speaking personally, I have been in labs where at the end of my time in that lab, I realized, oh, fuck, I should have been working with this one person the <laughs> entire time because, uh, you know, we're totally complementary. But it took us two years to figure it out. So how did that work in this specific case? And then what advice would you have for trying to figure that out? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting that you say that because I'm thinking now about my relationship with another uh, good friend of mine in graduate school who was too much like me. So we would actually just um, roll into the coffee shop on a, on any given weekday morning and sit and talk about ideas. And it would rarely turn into to an empirical project because we just both enjoyed the idea, the idea part of it. And that was definitely a friendship that shaped my thinking it's just one that didn't shape my cv very much right 
Um, with Eric, it was just one of those quirks where he was uh, here on, uh, he was at, he came to Yale for recruitment weekend. Actually, there it wasn't recruitment. You were already accepted. Um, so, so, well, yeah, I guess it was recruitment. It wasn't an interview weekend is what I'm trying to say. He was accepted um, to work with one of our professors. He was a very quirky guy. But from very early on in our conversations, we realized we kind of had the same sense of humor and the same way of thinking. Um, he's the one who encouraged uh, me to do um, this set of studies on motivated moral reasoning where we did traditional trolley problems, the trolley problems being being those philosophical scenarios where you're asked to trade off between uh, causing the death of an innocent person to save um, five people who would otherwise die. His idea was, um, was maybe in some cases we just flip around our answers because, because, uh, the thought of the thought of some people dying is more comfortable than the thought of other people dying. And it has nothing to do with your philosophical position. So we did a set of studies where we gave, um, the innocent person to be sacrificed, we gave them either a stereotypically rich white name, uh, Chip Ellsworth III, or a stereotypically uh, black American name, Tyrone Payton. And we saw whether or not uh, people's answers switched around. Um, and turns out that they do based on whether they were conservative or liberal um, in a way that's not may not be exactly what you expect. But that's sort of... Uh, irreverent way of thinking about these studies that's that's i think what clicked with us that the 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 sense of humor and the irreverence that that uh that led our conversations to be actually fun and engaging so um it strikes me that you are a man of uh both great strengths and great weaknesses and then also Thanks. that you are relatively... That's the nicest and the meanest thing anybody's ever said. <laughs> I think both of them become pretty apparent already at this point in the conversation. Uh, and what's cool about that is you also seem to just have a natural, easy self-awareness about what they are. And I'm sure some of it is retrospect, but it also seems that you just have a pretty intuitive feel for it. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering, because... Um, collaboration like you're describing then sort of plays this role it's like okay well I, I need to balance out some of those um, you know the the strengths and weaknesses uh, what other productive friendships and collaborations have you had throughout your career well that, first of all thank you I, I think it is a compliment <laughs> um, yeah absolutely I, absolutely I actually um, you know one of the reasons that I like to talk about it so much is that that um, like especially the weaknesses part is that every so often you would hear or I would hear some senior person um, sort of in a, in a candid conversation amongst friends express that maybe they thought they weren't the best say writer or something and and you're like what you've been thinking that all along and you find I've out that's been something thinking that, that about you as well yeah, they, <laughs> um, I can confirm uh, you are not I was, the best. I was talking about my podcast co-host Tamler Summers. Um, the <laughs> you you realize that that there are you know academics. I don't know if more so than the rest of the population, but but I suspect perhaps 
there are a lot of people who walk around with these insecurities about various aspects of of their career and their their strengths and abilities and um but they view it as as shameful as as something to hide and i think that that uh, that's if not the wrong strategy it's a strategy that would definitely make me a bit more miserable like learning that it's okay if you're not so good at this um, is what will allow you to maybe even swallow your pride and find a collaborator who is good at that um, and and that will just make everything go much more smoothly because to be honest what we do is complicated and there's a lot of moving parts even the simplest study from I, the idea formation to the final submitting of the paper there are so many different things that go into it that it's hard to expect that any one person would be able to navigate all of that with, you know, with such ease, let alone um, with uh, great abilities across the board. And so finding people, surrounding yourself with people who make you better is, is one of the great secrets probably of life, but, but definitely of academics. Um, the other relationships I've had, and this is, this is a strategy that, Um, I don't remember who told me explicitly early on in graduate school, um, but it's along the same lines, which is, and and perhaps this is just a virtue of the graduate program that I was part of. So the social psych, well, the psych department in general at Yale was very, very open to uh, students working with multiple faculty members. And so I was encouraged early on to work with more than one person and I realized, if I wasn't told explicitly, that often it was good to work with a senior professor as well as a junior professor because they brought different things to the table. The junior pre-tenured professor would be very, very motivated to get publications out there. A senior professor wouldn't necessarily be motivated to in that same way, but they could provide guidance that, that you just didn't have before. And so um, I ended up being lucky enough to work with at least three people in graduate school. And even though I was a social psychologist, I had entered as a developmental psychologist, and so I still had an interest in cognitive development. Paul Bloom arrived after I arrived. So I got to, once he arrived, um, and you've spoken to him, you know how awesome he is. Once he arrived, I got to working with him, and he... uh, was probably single-handedly the, the, the biggest influence in my academic career. I, in fact, I was at a point where I didn't, I wasn't sure that I would want to do research as a career, um, let alone stay in, in academia. I, I just wasn't sure if it was for me. And uh, with his advice and his example, I realized, oh, wait, yeah, I actually, I think I can do this. I, I kind of like it. Um, and all of the things that, that I picked up along the way uh, from Paul are things that I still to this day um, try to tell my own students. What's an example of, of one of those things? You know, um, I'll give you a real, uh, a very sort of low level um, life skill that, that Paul showed me. Um, we had written a paper together. Uh, this story has two two life lessons for me. So, uh, a psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt had recently written 
a paper that would become one of the most influential papers on moral judgment um, called The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tail. And in this paper, he was arguing that emotion and intuition were the primary moving forces of moral and ethical judgment. And I remember one of the professors in our department handing, handing me a preprint. It was something he had found on the web. I had never heard of Jonathan Haidt, not seen this paper. And I read it, and I couldn't have disagreed more. In fact, like it pissed me off. But by the I way, think I think a lot of people's first reaction to that paper was that I, this yeah. is not the first time I've heard this particular <laughs> right. reaction, but it, you know, disgust it was, one might call it disgust. With that <laughs> yeah, that's right. Paper. It was straight. It was a, it was a very strongly written, uh, uh, paper. So first, so you're telling me, first of all, you had an emotional reaction to the paper I, I first, <laughs> and then you came up with the cognitive wherewithal to back it. Is that oh, what you're describing? The, the irony, Cody, the irony. <laughs> Um, okay, sorry to derail. Go yeah, through. yeah, no. So I remember, I think Just I was making a, sure that I'm clear on what exactly happened. You, you're well. We can talk about <laughs> the, the actual uh, mechanisms oh. at work. Um, I think it was my third year, and um, I remember coming into Paul Bloom's office, uh, and and he had read the paper as well. In fact, it was Frank Kyle who had given us both the paper. Another cognitive developmental psychologist. And I, I, I told Paul, I was like, this is so fucking wrong, man. This, uh, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how pissed off I am. And Paul says, he, he doesn't remember saying this, but he told me, well, good, because anger is a great academic emotion. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he says, well, why don't you write a, a paper, like a comment on his paper? Now, John Haidt's paper had been published in Psych Review, the oldest and perhaps most distinguished uh, journal across the entire field, a big theory journal. And just for Paul to tell me, you know, I had come from a small no-name college, uh, just for Paul to tell me that it was possible that I could write a commentary on his paper and that somebody would want to publish it kind of blew my mind. Like I didn't, I was like, wait, I, I can do that. And he said, why not? Right. Especially now, like if, if you really are angry, like write down why, like if they're good reasons, then then uh, then let's submit it to Psych Review. So, of course, my mind was full of ideas for why John Hyde was wrong. I wrote him down, invited Paul to collaborate with me. Paul did his magic, turned my draft into something actually readable. And we submitted it and we submitted it to Psych Review, the paper that had published uh, the original, um, the journal that had published the original paper. Walter Michel, the famed personality psychologist, was the journal editor. Part of the policy was that the original author gets to review any paper that's that's challenging uh, their paper. John Haidt was not too happy with our initial draft, um, so, and so Walter Michel rejected this. So here's lesson number one: was uh, let your anger is like. Paul was my Sith Lord. Let let the hatred flow through you, um, <laughs> which motivated me to write it. Lesson number two was, uh, even though the paper had been rejected from Walter Michel, um, Paul and I both thought that there was actually quite a few reasons why the um, the criticisms that Haidt had of our paper weren't fair. So Paul 
took the lead in writing a letter. Now, this isn't something I recommend all the time, but every once in a while, it actually is a good strategy. He spearheaded writing a letter uh, of reply to to the editor and saying, hey, I think this, all of these reasons, here's why I think that they are misguided or, or in some cases, they misunderstand what we're saying. He laid it out so clearly, but parti- in particular... In non-combative language, he laid it out in 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 the kind of language that um, you would read, even if it was criticizing you, you would read it and say, "Oh, I see what he's saying." Like that's not, you know, it was a nice way of saying we disagree. It was, in fact, a nice way of saying you're being inconsistent or wrong. But it never it never attacked either John Height or the the editor. Um, and that paper, that letter to the editor, I still keep and I use as an example of how to write a good letter to the editor. There's no, there's no need to get defensive or to, to accuse anybody of anything. If you have good reasons, you can lay it out in an organized fashion in a way that is generous, charitable to the author and the editor but is simply stating your case. And that's one of those things that you don't learn. You don't, you don't take a methods class and they don't, they don't have a chapter on how to write a letter to the editor. Right. That was just a life lesson that I learned from Paul. Um, that's and really so, interesting. Yeah. So um, I want to reserve a couple minutes to talk about podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. But before I do that, you mentioned something that I'm interested to press on a little bit. Maybe you could speak to for a couple minutes. You said you thought about quitting. What motivated that impulse and uh, why ultimately do you decide against it? Yeah, that's a story that I think I, I, I like to tell because I think it's, it is invaluable. Like I mentioned before that I'd come from a, um, a small college. So I was raised in a very religious upbringing. I was a seventh day Adventist for any, for any of those uh, who know what that religion is. It's a Christian uh, religion, but it's one that's fairly strict. I went to a small liberal arts college that was uh, part of the church that I grew up in, um, a school that had maybe 12, 1300 students. We happen to have a really, really good psych department. I'm forever grateful that we had such a department that encouraged us to do research. That's what got me into grad school. I never quite felt, I felt like an imposter. Um, uh, when I got to grad school, I felt like all of my other, uh, my cohort, they had all gone to uh, Ivy League schools or big state universities. Um, I thought I had gotten in by mistake. These are feelings that that a lot of people report having they think they're unique in having them, but I promise you a lot, a lot, a lot of people have them. Um, I wasn't getting a lot of work done, right? As I mentioned before, I hadn't gotten bitten, gotten bit by the research bug. I was taking classes in philosophy. I wasn't sure that psychology was for me. I got a late start though. I started liking it. My like I said before, I started liking it my third, fourth year, collaborating with friends. By the time I was a fifth year, I was ready to defend my dissertation, but my CV was weak. I didn't have the kind of CV that would allow me to get a good research job, and I wasn't sure that I wanted one. 
And so I was applying to uh, liberal arts. At this point, I had decided that I, well, what else can I do? I'm going to apply to an academic job of some sort, but I always liked teaching. So I applied to mostly liberal arts colleges. And my advisor at the time, my official advisor wasn't Paul, it was Peter Salve, who, a social psychologist who's now the president of Yale. And he, he was busy and he didn't give me too much advice. In retrospect, when I talked to him, he said it's because he didn't want me to think that that he had, he didn't want to pressure me to go one way or the other. But I really didn't, I thought, you know, I, look, I don't think I'll get a research job. I don't want a postdoc because it's not like I've shown that I'm a great researcher and postdoc is all about research. So I applied to liberal arts jobs. And one night we were at a um, social area get together. This was a, this was actually a reception for Malcolm Gladwell, who before he was all big and famous had come to give a talk in our, in our little social psych area. And, uh, one of the professors in my department, Mazarin Banaji of uh, Implicit Association Test fame, um, was she was always great to me. We never collaborated, but but I always had a, a, a very good relationship with her. And she, she might kill me for telling this story, but she was about two martinis in, or uh, whatever drink of the choice, <laughs> of her choice. And she had recently had really, really bad back pain. So she was a couple of painkillers in. <laughs> and I was asking her, I was asking her, uh, I, I, I was talking, she was asking me how I was doing. This is right at the time when I was applying to jobs. And I said, you know, I'm applying to liberal arts colleges. I, I think I'm going to go the teaching route. And she said to me, um, well, look, she, she told me this story about how she almost went to a liberal arts college. But she said, look, if you want to go to a liberal arts college because you love teaching and you think that's what you want to do with your career, then great. Like, by all means, do it. You'll, you'll be great at it. But she said, if you're applying to only liberal arts jobs because you don't think you're a good enough researcher to make it in a research university, well, then you're wrong. And you should apply right? And maybe even do a postdoc. And I hadn't had anybody tell me that. Uh, nobody had been candid and just, you know, just stated that I could be wrong. <laughs> that, that uh, and nobody also had picked up on the cues that that is exactly what I was feeling. And not even I was aware that that's what I was feeling. I really thought I wasn't good enough. And for somebody of Mazarin stature, whom I respected quite a bit and who pulled no punches, by the way, in being critical, um, it was that moment that, that made me decide that I could uh, and should apply for research. I ended up getting a postdoc at UC Irvine and, and, then yeah, now 13 years later, I'm, I'm at a research university still. And she doesn't remember that story for various reasons, but it was what I needed to hear at the time. And I think that it's very easy to forget that some of our students need some of that plain speak. I think that we, we often are just trying to encourage, but not interfere in our students' lives. We want them to be autonomous. We want them to to have all the options available to them. But whether it's good or bad, I think sometimes 
it helps to just say, you know what, you know, this is, I'm making this up, but let's say that I'm your advisor, Cody. You know what, Cody, you're, you're doing this podcast. It seems to be what you love to do. You're a, a great science communicator. It seems like you're less excited about your research. Have you considered pursuing an opportunity um, in science communication, right? You may not want to hear that because we're all told that, that we have to be at a research university or, or be less than ideal. But to have somebody you respect tell you um, means, means a great deal. Well, uh, cheers to Mazarin then. I'm, I'm glad that she her. had those uh, couple martinis that night. Well, Cody, years later, I, years yeah. later, Mazarin was introducing me at a, <laughs> at a, a conference. It was a small conference on moral psychology at a business school. And uh, she, this is, I think I'm remembering her exact words. She said, what can I say about David? He was a terrible student. <laughs> he all he wanted to do was philosophize. We couldn't get him to collect any data, and look at him now. Here he is. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, so I want to be respectful of your time. We're kind of bumping up against the uh, uh, the boundary here, but maybe we could spend a couple minutes talking about it. I want I want to talk about um, your podcast briefly. In particular, um, could you maybe walk me through the moment that you and Tamler decided? Hey, this is something we should do. Sure. Um, to Tamler's credit, it was his idea. Tamler had come to me. Um, now, t I had met Tamler at a conference. He was still a graduate student, even though he's old as dirt and I'm young. He was a grad student and I was <laughs> already a postdoc and I was giving a talk at his school. And uh, we met there and we, much like with Eric Ullman, we realized we had a very similar way of thinking, sort of irreverent sounds douchey but you know like we we certainly were willing to say things in public that other people might not be <laughs> and we uh we became friends but friends only in the sense that whenever there was another conference that involved philosophers and psychologists we would go grab a beer and at some point he said hey i'm trying to i'm gonna i want to start a podcast and i was uh, which year is this so this would have been um, maybe 2010. Really? Um, yeah. I'm trying. Yeah, I, I could plus or minus a year. Um, and uh, I said maybe 2011. I said no. That's that's corny. Like I genuinely thought it was a corny idea. Um, I listened to podcasts, but all the podcasts that I listened to were tech podcasts. Um, and I thought you know, this, this sounds like it gives me the corny chills. Like I, I don't want to be talking into a microphone. What the hell would I say? Well, um, a, a little bit later, I don't remember the timeline. Uh, he, um, to make a long story short, he had the opportunity to go to Costa Rica at a resort, um, where they would bring artists for a week to have sort of a week in residence and the the person who ran this resort who's actually somebody um who was just independently wealthy wanted to he was interested in cognitive science and philosophy and he wanted to, to say well let's not just have artists spend a week in residence and talk to the people who are here let's have um uh, philosophers in residence and so he knew somebody who knew tamler 
he had read Tamler's um, original book called A Very Bad Wizard. He said, uh, can you come for a week and just talk? Maybe this will involve a couple of public talks and you talk to this to the uh, to the people who are there. Tamler said, cool, but I think you should invite my friend David Pizarro as well. And so he reached out to me. That is a good looking out move. Very much was. And uh, and that's where I said, okay, these people have been very generous. They they're paying all expense paid thing in order to really give back. um, I agreed to do six podcast episodes because that's all I thought I had in me. I thought, well, I know I could talk about this topic, maybe free will. Maybe talk about punishment. I think I could talk about emotions, right? I listed out all of the things that I might have anything to say about, and I got to a maximum of six. And so we brought our recording equipment, our cheap, shitty little USB microphones to Costa Rica, and we recorded a few episodes, a few episodes that were throwaway. It took us a long time to figure out just the technical aspects. Uh, it took us a long time to figure out um, <laughs> how, to t- how to talk into the microphones. Well, you guys without... were goddamn early innovators in, in podcasts. <laughs> we... if, it was, if it was 2010, 2011. Yeah, this is... Then our first podcast was uh, published, I think, in 2012. Um, and, uh, and even though... So we finished, we wrapped up the, the Costa Rica gig and we just kept having ideas for the next podcast. And... You know, we're a hundred. We just published episode one eighty, and um, and what I thought was corn a corny idea for which I had at, at best six topics to discuss, ended up being, um, as you were alluding to at the beginning, one of the most rewarding aspects of my career. Um, and at the beginning, as as you probably know, getting off the ground is you know it's it's not easy, but from early on, I always was of the opinion that um, that we shouldn't chase numbers because in our business, even if 100 people listen to us, that's potentially touching, uh, uh, you know, 99 more lives than, than we would normally um, because no one's going to be reading what we write. And, uh, and the, you know, through just, I think consistency and through the appearance of of well-known and good guests like paul bloom and the ever controversial sam harris our audience continued to grow and continue to grow and and at this point it seems like you know it is just as just as much a part of my career as as anything else it takes as you know cody a ton of time (laughs) so I want to hear about you, uh, but I want to hear from you about how, um, whether or not this is something that your grad school advisors have, do they know about? Have they encouraged it? How much time are you devoting to this? Do you feel like you're, uh, you're, um, taking time away from things that you should be doing, or is this just, uh, just, uh, uh, unqualified good? Uh, I have answers to all of those questions. Mm-hmm. So first of all, um, my primary supervisor at Oxford, his name is Matt Apps, and he's fantastic, um, a really great advisor, uh, early career um, in every way. 
Uh, I did not ask for his permission before doing this. I actually started it a few months before I came to Oxford, so he had no say over it. And he discovered <laughs> it when I started publishing the links on Twitter um, mm -hmm. that this was something I was doing. And it was only you know a, a month or so after that that I actually uh, directly brought it up in one of our um, uh, conversations. Uh, and I was like, so you know that I'm doing this podcast thing, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm like, oh, it's really great. Um, so part, part of the way that it works for me is that it has to, um, it has to not take up a lot of time, right? It has to be fairly optimized, um, uh, in that, uh, it, like this only adds to my career if it doesn't prevent me from doing the things that I'm actually ostensibly supposed to be doing, uh, right? right? Um, and so I, I've, I've had to sort of set it up with that in mind. And um, I, I've certainly got it to that point. I, I spend about six hours per week on the podcast in the form of uh, uh, a couple chunks of, of time um, for cold emailing people and editing the shows. And then uh, each show takes me uh, about a, you know, an hour and a half to record, um, an hour to record, and 30 minutes to prep for. Um, so that's, uh, you know, six to eight hours per week. Um, and uh, the thing that sort of makes it work is being able to express to people like yourself why I think it's important to do. Because I don't know any of these fucking people, Paul Bloom and yourself included, uh, off the bat, and they have no reason to help me. And in addition to um, you know, just being willing to help people in general, which, uh, like you alluded to earlier, can be sort of an affliction if you don't know how to turn it off and say no. Right. Um, uh, but being able to articulate to people why I think talking to them about these early career things that they may not talk about widely because they're talking about their particular content, I feel like that's actually very important. It goes quite far beyond me. So it's not just hey, I have a podcast, will you indulge me while I try to reach an audience or something like that? It is. This is something that I think is a genuinely important thing for people who are in my stage of career. Um, and I would like to build something um, that addresses that. And I would like for you, uh, you know, people like yourself, David, uh, to be a part of it. And so that's kind of what it looks like for me and how uh, it's structured and how I spend my time doing it and how I try to, um, you know, appeal to, um, you know, the kinds of people that I'd like to interview. And I think that people like me would like to hear from, you know? Well, I think it's good. You know, I think that as, as uh, podcasts, you know, move from fad status to, to just, you know, legit enterprises um, or endeavors at least that, uh, my hope is that universities will start recognizing this kind of work as as genuine service work. And I've even seen the shift in my own university from like, wait, what are you doing uh, to, you know, bragging uh, about about the reach of the podcast. Right. Making yeah. it a source of pride. And that that move has been funny because, you know, it's like, oh, okay, oh, now now. <laughs> 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 but it's still not the case that um that you know i we get credit for it from our university in any official way like uh but but i think that if we wanted to um to make a case for it 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 might be 
it might be much easier to do now than it ever was. And I think, again, this is, we, we live in an age where because of this form of mass communication, uh, a student who is insecure about their own skills and abilities or needs career advice now has a, uh, you know, or whose advisor is an asshole, to be honest, right? Um, they now have sources of guidance, wisdom, advice from multiple uh, individuals who might speak to them in a way that they can't get from anywhere in their local environment. Um, you know, I so, think that yeah. um, the the sort of norms around imposter syndrome are going to shift. Um, yeah. I think they are shifting. I think they're going to continue for two reasons. One is that um, for the reason that you just mentioned, essentially, which that the vast majority of scientists um, have spent a portion of their career, if not currently still struggle with the whole, um, you know, constellation of feelings around um, being an imposter, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And I think that that's becoming more and more widely recognized. Um, and, uh, you know, there is it's it's rare on this particular show for people not to have a version of what they went through or are still dealing with to some extent in, in that. And number two is that I think that um, that's something that, you know, the upcoming generations of human beings uh, and scientists um, who in theory are also human beings uh, are, are more sensitive to, right? And that's, yeah. you know, uh, uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing uh, with, you know, the generation below mine gen z uh and that sort of thing is that i think people are going to be increasingly open about that and um that you know i i my hope is that the norms are going to shift very positively about that in the future yeah yeah i agree and you know i i there's one piece of advice that i don't give very often that i now that that i have you and your audience there's something that very large audience, you know. Eventually, it will be, and they'll listen to all of your uh, back, the back episodes, which, is, That's, which yeah. is actually the weirdest thing when people email us and say, like, I started from episode one. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, uh, which is that uh, something just piggybacking off of what you said, no, ma- you, no matter how old or distinguished or famous you think someone is um, or how certain you are that they couldn't possibly have imposter syndrome or be insecure about their career because objectively, you know, they have a thousand publications and, you know, they've been cited many times. Um, I've been completely struck by uh, two things. One, how little we often in academics express gratitude um, or admiration to the people who we truly admire. So some, somebody's influenced your work. Um, I think there's there's this view that maybe you'd be perceived as as kissing ass um, or right just strategically talking to somebody. Um, but if you genuinely, if somebody genuinely wrote a paper that changed the way you think about a topic, and you see them at a conference, um, feel free to tell them. I remember one of the experiences I had early on when I was a postdoc, there was a, a, a professor who to me was like, you know, one of the papers that he and his co-authors wrote solidified my desire to go into, into moral judgment at a time where not many people were doing it. And also 
shaped the way that I thought about something. But he was well known as kind of cantankerous. Some might even say kind of a, an ass. And I remember asking uh, a particularly, you know, challenging question after his talk at this small conference uh, in a way that I think, given his natural inclinations, he, he, I knew that he probably didn't like me for having asked that question. But I went up to him afterwards and I introduced myself and I said, hey, I was the person who asked this question and he definitely recognized me. He was giving me this sort of sour look. And I told him the truth, that God's honest truth, that one of the papers that he wrote was w one of the reasons that I stayed in this field of moral psychology. And his face absolutely changed. And it, it became the softest sort of like he couldn't believe what I was saying. But you could see the gratitude in his face uh, um, and the softening of, of his whatever his emotional state was. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, for me, I was going out on a limb, uh, risking his ire or risking him thinking that I was nothing but a kiss ass. Um, but in reality, he, I think just probably didn't hear that very often. And over the years, I've realized that that just is true. So if there's somebody who, who has influenced you, who, who has, has uh, done work that you that you admire or respect, just email them, you know, or or go to them after after their talk and and say so. I you think know what that, you know what that goes back to, right? Yeah, that's what Paul Bloom said about anger being uh, such an important academic emotion, right? Huh. Because anger is such a core part of what motivates us to action. Yeah, the only time it occurs to us to go out of our way to tell someone in an intellectual academic context what we think about them and their work uh, is when we disagree with it, right? Yeah, that is our right. natural inclination. And this is something you and I were talking about before we hit the record button. Uh, it was, I was making this claim that there's this big difference between how people react to written word versus podcast. People tend to just say nice things about a podcast, whereas when you write an article, there are all these people, they come out of the woodwork on the internet to tell you you're the dumbest person they've ever read a line from <laughs> right. in their entire lives, right? Right, right. Um, so much of our training is pointing out the errors in other people's works. Like, God forbid oh, yeah. that the, the day ever comes doing. where we're, we're trained to point out the errors in podcasts. I think this is something that all humans could do a better job of. Is if someone has positively influenced your life, I think it should be your responsibility as a human being to tell them that you did that. Absolutely. And there's no downside. I mean, the downside might might be that you don't get the reaction maybe that you expected to get. But the truth of the matter is some people are broken and they don't know how to act in, in, in those kinds of Some people are situations. also British, uh, I've found living in, in this country, which is that when you try and tell them, uh, uh, you know, your advisor, for example, how, how great of a job they're doing, the 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 mere implication of a compliment is enough to uh, to put British people into sort of a, a tizzy right. of, of <laughs> un uncomfortableness. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is its own reward. That's that's a that's also a, a, an enjoyable reaction to a listen. Oh, if you learn how to embrace awkward moments, then you'll go far in academia. Oh. <laughs> Excellent. Um, very cool. Well, this has been really fun and I want to be, uh, respectful of your time. We've gone over a little bit here, so I want to, 
uh, let you go. I know you've got a dog who's uh, waiting for some attention, I'm sure. That's right. He's he's already committed ritual suicide, given my... <laughs> well, I'm very glad to hear that, David. Uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. This has been a real treat, and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing it with people. Thanks a lot, Cody. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for this week. Uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to my interview with David Pissarro. It was a lot of fun to talk to him, and I encourage you to go listen to his podcast, uh, Very Bad Wizards, if you haven't already. And um, like I mentioned at the beginning, if you'd like to subscribe to my new Friendship Friday newsletter, you can do so at my website, CodyCommerce.com. You can find me on Twitter at CodyCommerce. And thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show or have any constructive feedback, I really sincerely would love to hear from you. And you can send me a message at Cody.Commerce at gmail.com. So thank you for listening, and I will see you back here next week.